0: Okay, so I want to start with um, a question for all of you actually. So how many people here have had to see something in a different way during the last three months? (laughs) Yeah, I think just about everybody. And, so, and how many of you found that to be completely trivial, simple, just to switch your mind over to this new situation and go on completely smoothly? <laughs> not as many hands on that one. Yeah, probably not. So, so one outcome of Dharma practice is that the mind becomes more flexible and adaptive. Um, Now we don't need to create an ideal of some kind of perfect fluidity and responsiveness but uh, nonetheless it is considered kind of an indicator of greater maturity to have more flexibility of mind and that's regardless of age. So but I think we've all experienced that you know when things shift or change it's not always easy and even not even with some of the larger things we've been experiencing, but even sometimes small or seeming, seemingly not very important things can actually throw the mind or, you know, we find stickiness in certain places, sometimes surprising, like we didn't know that we were attached in a certain area and then when it changes we, we realize that we were. So, so what is the issue that prevents responsiveness? There's kind of a couple things. Um, one is that our thinking mind is, is rigid. It's just how it is. Um, concepts are forever, in some way. You know, when we have a concept about something, the concept doesn't change as easily as experience, which is always changing. So we can get stuck onto a, onto a certain fixed concept. And then also, a little more subtly, our perception is known to be flawed. If we're not fully awake, we will see things in distorted ways. For example, we will see things that are impermanent as permanent. And this can also um, be a problem when they change, and we, we weren't expecting that, we didn't perceive them that way. So these distortions and this rigidity are problematic actually and they contribute to dukkha as life flows along. So one thing that we can do in practice is we can train to deliberately loosen our mind up a little bit and we can choose to engage contrasting functions of mind for example in order to broaden and stretch the ability of our mind And we can also engage differing viewpoints in order to cultivate different perceptions and hone our understanding. So this helps us to to see differently and to also eventually shift our perception into something that's more accurate, which is a lot of what the Dharma is about. I mean, we think about sitting on the cushion and doing these things, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but in the end we're kind of learning to see differently and to be able to respond differently. So I called this talk, um, Training in Opposites, but maybe we'll just call it Training in Contrasts, something like that. Um, And even if it is opposites, I just want to be clear from the beginning that we're talking only within the realm of the wholesome. Uh, We're not engaging wholesome and unwholesome as as opposites. Um, There are a couple of caveats to the particular domain of practice I'll be talking about tonight. One is that it's not really a whole life philosophy, so I don't want what I'm saying to be taken as one more rigid idea about how things ought to be done. Um, And it's also not not always the right approach. I'm going to talk about being flexible in our approach and there are times when actually it's the right thing just to do one single thing and hold on to that and take it very deep and very far and not allow the mind to be distracted so, um, but other times it's nice to uh, to have some deliberate contrast. Uh, maybe a simple physical analogy is that if you're training your bicep muscle, you should also train the tricep muscle at the same time. You don't you'll, you don't only do one. So you know the bicep flexes the arm and the tricep extends the arm, and you want to be able to do both of those with some agility. So these are some methods that we can extend, or refine, or open the mind, and sometimes learn in surprising ways, which increases flexibility of mind. So I hope it, I hope it will be interesting. encourage you to try it. The, um, the contemplative teacher Arthur Zionk writes, Concepts are much more than simple designators. They form the very structures by which we perceive the world Consciousness itself is shaped by our ingrained habits of thought. They form the ruts in which our perceptual system runs. In order to overcome habits of perception, you must first become aware of them, and then work to change them by entertaining alternatives. So, I I like that idea. So, to give a bit of a story, Um, There was a a while where I worked with a Tai Chi instructor who was also a practitioner of Chinese medicine. So he was a martial artist and also a healer. And um, during the time when I was taking classes and uh, also getting sessions from him, uh, his own practice was evolving into doing more and more rigorous martial arts. And this isn't, um, you know, it's not really my path, but he was, uh, he was very into this and he, I mean, by rigorous I mean he would go to competitions and fight with people. And so, but at the same time, I noticed that his healing practice also got deeper. There was some way in which he was skillfully engaging both of these skills that as he mastered more martial arts, he also became uh, more precise and attuned In his healing ability. They seem to kind of reinforce each other, which I thought was very interesting. Um, And then, on a much, maybe a much different scale, nonetheless, uh, I have noticed about myself during this shelter in place that it has been, I think many people have been uh, telling me this also, is that it's been a time when we've had a little bit more opportunity sometimes for meditation. And I don't know if there's more time necessarily with all the Zoom meetings that we have, but there's a a sense that it's, um, we're not engaging as many of our busy identities out in the world, most of us. And so there has been some effect from that as maybe somewhat uh, deeper meditation or a a loosening up of the identity in the same way that we have on retreat or even during a day long. Uh, These kinds of things have come about just from the way that we're living. Um, And so I've seen that also in myself but then at the same time, um, in order to get exercise, I've been doing some classes online, and I discovered this technique called um, Power Core, which is like this kind of um, uh, fairly energetic uh, practice that is, of course, meant to engage the you know the core muscles, which is good for meditators. Um, and it's uh, it uses weights like little hand weights and you know little movements. And some of it, the teacher that I'm um, learning with is this uh, young rather buff woman who um, is very energetic. Some of it's a little bit more than I should be doing at my age. But I was just, I've been struck by the contrast is that, you know, I can sit in meditation for a while and then I get up and I tune into the power core class and it's a completely different mindset. (laughs) And yet um, it sort of goes together somehow. It kind of works and I've been feeling that it's, it's been a kind of a healthy combination. So, you know, just as a suggestion, I don't know, if you do some kind of fine handcraft or have a, a refined kind of practice, have you considered uh, learning to lift weights? Or, you know, do something that's quite different from that, still in the realm of the wholesome, but as a way of, of stretching. And if you feel resistance to that idea in your mind, that is also something to notice. Because that resistance is what comes up as dukkha, when the shift happens and we have to make it. We don't have a choice. Um, So pay attention to that. Another example, maybe, is that I have a friend who is a very long time Buddhist practitioner, and um, he's simultaneously, when I think about how he is in the world, he is simultaneously one of the most um, reverent people that I know, uh, very dedicated and sincere, and he's also one of the most irreverent people that I know. Is that he is very direct. He'll call everything as he sees it. Nothing is sacred. Um, if it's something that he thinks that you're saying is not accurate, so um, it's uh, it's an interesting contrast because he is completely sincere in both his reverence and his irreverence. And I've marveled at the flexibility of his mind, and I think it's just the outcome of decades and decades of Dharma practice. It's very easy for him to uh, to change uh, as appropriate. And as I reflected on this topic, I also remembered something that Shaila told me years and years ago, where she was commenting about, also about observing people in practice, and she said that she had noticed that over time people tend to become simultaneously softer through practice and also stronger. So there's something in us that um, it doesn't have so many hard edges about it, um, and yet uh, this does not make us, you know, weak and an easy pushover. People who've practiced a long time are also very clear and not so easy to. Uh, manipulate or or other such things. So it's interesting that these contrasting qualities are actually the product of practice as well as a method that we can use to train the mind. So I want to then give a series of examples of how we can practice in a way that trains our mind in contrasts in order to, to make it more flexible and responsive. Uh, within the realm of Buddhist practice, there are actually quite a number of examples of this. Uh, In the development of the citta, of the the heart-mind, that uh, just proceeds naturally, we have um, a sharpening of the analytical abilities of the mind, and I don't mean a lot of discursive thought, I mean uh, the ability to separate, differentiate, clearly identify what is going on, uh, the investigative part of the mind, and also to soften and deepen the heart. Uh, it's not that this is the opposite, but there's a you know, a softening, an opening to the heart qualities, uh, an increase in compassion, um, you know, in things that are uh, open, warm, accepting, inclusive, as well as the ability to separate, differentiate. These things are um, signs, both of these are signs of the deepening of practice. We also have um, many examples of deliberate cultivations that um, uh, strengthen two things at the same time, balancing factors. So, for example, in the factors of awakening and in the spiritual faculties, we have um, an importance in balancing them. And this isn't a lesson in long lists, but um, I'll just mention, in case those aren't so familiar, that the the factors of awakening have two different um, components of them. One are energizing factors, things like um, investigation energy and joy, things that energize the mind, and then on the other side things that are uh, more calming factors of tranquility and concentration and equanimity. And we might think, well, those are it's how do you cultivate joy and equanimity at the same time? But you do, <laughs> actually. They um, they both come about through practice and it can be um, uh, Created at the same time and brought into harmony to strengthen each other, and then in the spiritual faculties we also have um, balances specifically between energy and concentration, um, so that a mind, the mind has both a tendency to uh, gather and um, focus, and also um, an energy of, of buoyancy of directing into this state. So. They're not exactly opposite, but they are contrasting, uh, and they are used to balance and harmonize each other. And then also in the faculties, um, there's a balance between uh, faith and wisdom, which people also sometimes think of as opposite. You know, faith is about not knowing something and, and uh, opening to what you're you know, not, um, something that you don't know for yourself yet whereas wisdom is knowing for yourself having clarity and yet both of these factors are needed in order to walk the path because there's always something that we're basing ourselves on in a certain way some knowledge or some something that we're confident in and then there's the extension of having faith into things that we're that we don't know for ourselves yet things that we can't understand cognitively in some ways and Uh, those two can also be onward leading between them. So in the realm of of wholesome qualities, like the factors of awakening or the spiritual faculties, we have the interesting reality that contrasts enhance each other. They don't cancel each other out. And when they're done well, they're like two trees maybe that are growing together and leaning on each other in order to grow higher and higher, higher than either one could by itself. That's just one image for it. Um, and the the result of doing this, of, of cultivating, contrasting, but enhancing qualities is it's even stated in the suttas that the mind becomes pliable, workable, uh, ready for insight and um, there's a way in which these uh, these contrasting qualities are exactly the path to getting the mind to the point where it can where it can open and awaken. Even outside of cushion practice, there are a lot of opportunities um, in our daily life for more informal kinds of practice to develop contrasts and uh, help the mind to expand and stretch a little bit into new territory. So I'll just start right out with one of the hardest ones which is that it's really a good idea to read from a range of places on the political map. Um, Just as an example, if you feel that you were in the liberal domain of the political map. Um, I don't recommend finding the most outrageous far-right-wing articles that you can because that will actually only reinforce your position, which is not the point. But for a better effect, um, it is really valuable to try some reasoned analysis of the that criticizes the left from the center. I have done a little bit of this myself recently because there's um, Partly because there's such a strong uh, focus right now um, on politics, and particularly on progressive politics, which I feel sometimes aligned with, um, certainly with the, those aims, yes. Um, and so I I've, I've felt that it was important to go and look at some other options and be careful that I was um, getting a balanced view. This is a, I found it actually to be quite useful and grounding and um, it aided in my analytical ability of being able to choose actually what I feel to be wholesome and what I feel to be unwholesome. This is a real place to notice resistance in the mind if you're feeling that. Um, So just again, just to be aware uh, if there might be some sticking there in the mind. Maybe moving into some areas also where we don't think to practice as much. Um, we can consider the perception of time. So we often live in the time scale of our personal self. You know, what I need to do today, what's going to happen tomorrow, what I need to plan for next week. Um, you know, the kind of flow of of what the self is doing in the world. Um, but there are. Uh, this is also a realm where we have a lot of uh, suffering. <laughs> we can depending on how we approach it. So it can be interesting to try uh, different timescales. So like really long timescales. Um, years, decades, centuries, millennia. Um, whatever's going on in my life is going to be uh, you know what's going to happen tomorrow is a pretty small blip compared to 10 or 20 years from now. Whatever it's going to be. So. Um, that can actually reduce the the stress of this particular moment. And then also we can look on very short timescales, like momentary timescales. This moment is actually quite vast if we really open to all of the inputs that are normally being filtered out while we're worried about our our personal time, our personal self timescale. Um, there's a huge amount going on in this moment in terms of what's coming in in terms of light and sound and touch and maybe even taste and smell um, things in the mind there's a huge amount and if we sit of course we may see this in meditation but we can also do it you know, sitting quietly in a chair with a cup of tea see how much you can open to uh, in terms of the uh, the body and the mind, well, everything that's going on. And when that really expands to fullness and is held in the mind as it flows along, quite interestingly there's no sense of self in that. There can't be. There's no time for it to be <laughs> created, in a sense, there's no basis for it in just the just the sensory and mental impacts. So, we may discover that uh, these other time scales are sort of relieving in terms of not having as much inherent uh, dukkha, less self, less problem. So we discover then that that time is a perception uh, and it's something that we actually have some choice about and this can be enormously helpful just in day-to-day practice and it can also eventually get quite profound in in meditation practice. There's also the realm of people. So um, just as, a, as an example from my life, meditation is supposed to make us sane, right? Um, and so I, but I remember that there was a time, I, I've, I've, um, for a number of years, I volunteered in the psychiatric ward to teach meditation to the people there in a hospital. And it was a quite profound uh, to encounter um, people there who had very different understandings of reality and very different responses to things that were said or done. Uh, now this was an acute psychiatric ward, so there weren't people with sort of long-term chronic issues just living there. They were more in a, a little bit of a state of emergency. Um, but nonetheless, I found that by coming in as a supposedly sane person, I learned quite a lot about how my own mind works based on um, how their minds worked. And it was kind of delightful in some ways to see uh, people who, who were not bound by conventional approaches to um, emotions or thoughts or connecting things together. Um, now, I don't want to... I want to be clear that there's a lot of suffering in that kind of mind. This is um, uh, there's a lot of dukkha there because there's so much uh, misperception of things. But it it did have the dharmic effect of showing me um, what way in what ways my mind was uh, conditioned to respond in certain ways that were considered normal or conventional um, about certain things. And so it was actually kind of delightful. I was always I didn't know what people would say when I offered a, a poem or a teaching or a, a guided meditation. Uh, really anything could happen <laughs> as a result of that. And that, um, that kind of loosened me up a bit in certain ways. It, um, it helped me to, to really meet folks like that where they are, required me to let go of uh, some of my ideas about how things should be or ought to be or were expected to be. So this was um, valuable gave me a perspective on what normal, quote-unquote, is and is not. It can also be fruitful uh, to meet people that you don't usually associate with. It's very easy for us to live in a world where we try even to mostly be with like-minded people. And there is a certain um, support in, in that, especially if we're doing Dharma practice, which will make our mind... Um, work in different ways <laughs> than conventional, so it's sangha is very important, and yet to um, balance ourselves a little bit, it can be it can be helpful to know some people who are not not like that at all, and certainly are also outside of our usual um, racial or socioeconomic or uh, religious kind of um, area. Now, if you're highly introverted, and that's going to be a lot of it dupe- it's not necessary, but uh, you know, I'll put that out there as a as a stretch for many of us. It's good. This begins to sound some some aspects of this is to sounds like a practice that I heard about. I heard described as uh, living the question. So there are ways in which, if we have questions about our practice or about life, like I wonder about such and such, uh, the, the way to approach this can be instead of reading a book about it or talking to someone about it is to actually go do it. So for example, uh, I got to a point in my practice where I got curious about Koan practice, which we don't have in our tradition, and I thought, ooh, that sounds a little bit scary to have to appear before a teacher and sort of spontaneously come up with some... You know, is it really like that? What do they do? And so, instead of um, uh, wondering about that, I went and found a koan teacher, and uh, I've actually worked with two of them now uh, to see what it was like. You know, so I just went and and tried it. If you think you are don't like it or you don't understand this kind of thing, then probably the solution is to go do it, right? So I think it might be interesting to consider if there's some area of practice or something that you've been thinking about, <coughs> wondering what it is or how to engage with it if, it, if you might be willing to actually go and do that. Of course, maybe during shelter-in-place it's hard to have these face-to-face encounters, but um, living the question is a potent area, a potent way of practicing. Um, you know, even. Going and doing something, just putting yourself in a different situation, very valuable. You'll discover it's possible <laughs> and you'll also discover that it's not what you thought in good ways. So what are some you know, some results of doing practice like this? Of course, I've been talking all along that the mind becomes more flexible and responsive, less likely to Run into dukkha immediately when things change, yes. as they do, as we've noticed. But there are other area, other you know results that can be expected also. In particular, um, we can avoid the result that is described in Udana 6.4, which is the uh, classic story of the blind man and the elephant. Where um, uh, this is a, actually in many different traditions. It's not only in the Buddhist tradition where um, a bunch of people who are blind from birth are shown different parts of an elephant. And, you know, some are shown the legs, some are shown the belly, some on the trunk, some on the tail. And each one gets a different impression of the elephant because of what they were shown. You know, let's say, oh, the one who feels the leg says, oh, it's like a pillar. And the one who feels the tail says, oh, it's like a broom. Um, and so, then when they're asked to kind of share their impressions of what an elephant is, uh, they realize that you know, somebody else is saying something completely different from them and they must be wrong because obviously it feels like a broom. How could, it, how could they say something else? And so in the story, the blind people uh, get mad and actually start hitting each other. They, get in, they start fighting and this is likened. Now, if we're finding that amusing, this is likened to the way uh, practitioners will get in arguments about the Dharma and about views of how things are and aren't, and what counts as the Dharma, and what isn't the Dharma, and what, how the Dharma should be, and so forth. And I think we could easily extend this in our lay lives to just views about how things ought to be done, what people ought to be doing, how things ought to be run, so forth. And yeah, we do get into fights about that, don't we? Maybe not with our fists, but um, in ways that are in some ways equally damaging Can hurt our relationships and certainly our mental state. So um, maybe I'll just read a little quote from that sutta. And the blind people saying, such is an elephant, such is not an elephant, such is not an elephant, such is an elephant, hit each other with their fists. Just so, monks, wanderers from other sects are blind, without vision. They do not know what is good, they do not know what is not good. They do not know what is Dhamma, they do not know what is not Dhamma. They live contending, quarreling, disputing, attacking each other with sharp tongues, saying, such is Dhamma, such is not Dhamma, such is not Dhamma, such is Dhamma. it's humbling in some ways, but this is another way in which we're, we find that our mind may not be able to be flexible. And then there's dukkha, contending, attacking, quarreling, disputing, there are also words for dukkha. Um, and so there's a need there for, for some letting go, for some opening. It doesn't mean that we uh, agree or um, endorse or even approve of. Um, other things that we're hearing. That's not necessary. Um, Remember we're becoming softer and stronger so we don't just fall over and become a doormat and say oh you're right but at the same time we have a softness um, where uh, there aren't hard edges needed to meet against these other things. It's so important especially at this time where there's some fair amount of social unrest um, that we're not contributing to that through rigidity of, of view and inability to have some some flexibility in our mind. So that's another very good result of this kind of training. And then in addition, uh, especially when we're, we start to work with this and we find the places where we resist or we can't be as flexible as we want, what we're seeing of course is our conditioning. We're seeing those ruts. that. Our, our perceptual ruts and our, the ruts of our views, and any time we're doing this kind of work on ourselves, it can actually be quite tender, and it's important to have some humor. And as we see the limits of our mind and what it's willing to do or capable of doing, and um, not to be too idealistic, and to kind of see our the humorous side of our the limits we place really on ourselves. I remember that uh, when I was I don't know, 17 or 18, uh, when I thought I knew a lot. <laughs> um, I, I swore, I was sort of launching out into my life, right? And I, um, I remember swearing to myself that there were definitely two things that I was never going to have anything to do with in my life. And those two were um, business and religion. Because I knew that both of those um, just didn't have anything to do with what I was about in the world. And so here I am, like some decades later, and I have an MBA, and I'm a Dharma teacher. So um, I will say that I was right in the sense that um, I didn't end up engaging either of those things in the ways that, that I was objecting to as a 17-year-old. Um, so the ways that I was you know, thinking that they were not wholesome. Um, so I didn't end up engaging with them in unwholesome ways, but I did end up finding ways that they fit into my to my life path uh, in ways that did make sense to me. So looking back, I see that you know it's a good thing I didn't believe totally believe that limitation and shut those things out from my life. So we have to be so careful that we're not limiting ourselves when we make statements like, "I can do this," "I can't do this," "I will never do this." Uh, these kinds of things. Gosh, we just don't know, do we? So you may have examples like that from your own life. Or if you're younger, you will (laughs) someday. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, we start to see the humor of our own conditioning and the presumption, really, in what we think we know about how our life is going to go. And then we can extend this to others you know, um, they're the same. This invites compassion for the limitations that we see other people placing on themselves, or the rigidity that we think we see in them. Who knows? Who knows what's going on there? It's all been conditioned in and only only practice and insight in some way are gonna help soften that up, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah, so everyone's managing the conditions of their life as well as they can at this moment. and and that's how it is. <laughs> so we can start to soften up with some of that. So um, I could end there, but I, I would be remiss not to go a little farther in the Dharmic significance of training and contrasts. Um, there are ways in which Dharma practice opens us up to the genuine koans or paradoxes maybe it's not a genuine paradox but seeming paradoxes of experience and of life and of, of the way our mind operates you know we may know about emptiness the you know the complete not self nature of experience fact that it doesn't signify anything, it has no ultimate ground, and yet it happens. How do we explain that there's a huge amount of experience <laughs> happening each moment? So it's a, something that's um, not easy to understand with the cognitive mind. We may know that there's um, no self. You know, there's not really nothing here that's a substantial entity that I could say is a forever unchanging kimness of, of this. Um, and yet I experience myself in relationship to other beings. I I can't experience the the mind of another being. So there is relationship, and yet there's no self. So don't think about it too much. It's it's an experiential truth, but not something that we can um, maybe encompass with our logical mind. Uh, We make effort. Effort is absolutely necessary in practice. Uh, only to discover that there's no one in control of this. <laughs> you know, uh, this is operating by itself in many ways, but effort is needed. So, um, we find ways, uh, however it works for you, to stand in these paradoxes, to rest in a certain amount of un- uh, unknowability about the totality. Uh, we can't quite encompass that with our s- uh, the small consciousness of this moment. Uh, so there's a way that practice opens us up to losing control and relinquishing in, in just the right way that brings us to to freedom. So the contrasts can go farther than you think. It's, uh, it's not just a technique, it's a, a trusting, a, a trusting and a letting go which is quite profound Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.